my God is still in control. Amen? Aren't you glad? And I tend to forget that every now and then. All right, for the first time in nine plus months, I'm going to ask you to turn someplace, and it's not going to start with the word Exodus, okay? ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can pick out, start in verse 9. You can go to page, if you're in that pew Bible, you can go to page 1,329. I have to start by saying that I have so many things that I want to say, and I've just prayed that the Lord would not let me say any of them. You see, church, God has something to say. And I desire, in an increasing fashion every week, I pray, to just be that conduit, to let him say what he wants to say. We'll stand and read here in just a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, picking up in verse 9. We'll be there in just a moment. D.L. Moody was traveling by boat on one of the Great Lakes, when a really bad storm developed. The other passengers on the boat cowered in fear. They even started an impromptu prayer meeting, asking God to deliver them from the storm. But Moody, a pastor, a preacher, didn't join this prayer meeting. When asked why not, he answered with these words, I have a sister in Chicago and one in heaven. I don't care which one I see tonight. In the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, there's a section called The Kingdom. It's section 9 of the Baptist Faith and Message. It quotes, it says this, it says, The kingdom of God includes both his general sovereignty over the universe and his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as king. Particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians ought to pray and to labor that the kingdom may come and that God's will be done on earth. The full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the age. Church, can I remind you that Jesus is coming back? And therefore, what we believe and how we behave must always go together. It matters how you Live, and I know I've never said that before. I think if I have a headstone, that's what it'll say. It matters how you live. Write down this number, 3,420. Now, if you're a numbers guy, you don't have to write it down. It'll be forever etched in your mind. But some of you are going, what number did you say? Already, 3,420. That is an eternally significant number that we will talk about here in just a few minutes. Okay, 3,420. I gave it to you one more time, okay? Let's start with a basic statement. Right now, you are either living for God or you are not. Best I can read in Scripture, there is no living halfway for God. God actually speaks to that. He says, when you live halfway for me, halfway, it makes me sick. 
God doesn't recognize halfway living. So to church, you have a decision to make to start with is you're either living for God or you're not. And what we talk about for the next few minutes is going to either solidify that you're living for God or it's going to convict you that you're not and hopefully draw you toward recommitting that life and living it for God. One of the questions that I know that my life is going to be riddled with as my granddaughter grows up is why? 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 Some of you right now are going, I'm so glad they have children's church right now because I got my little why out of my, out of my hair for just a little bit. <laughs> Kids like to ask the questions why, but why is an important word in our lives. Why is a critical question that I think we should ask. It means, for what reason or purpose? Why? You know, I've been trained a lot in business for 25 years and how to solve problems, how to do this, how to do that. And there's this principle called the five why principle that if you'll ask yourself why, and then when you get to that answer, you'll ask yourself why, and you get to that answer, you get it all the way down to the fifth time you ask yourself why, you will eventually get to a root cause issue in business. I think it's true in life. Why? Why do you do what you do? Why? There's a book out there called Find Your Why. Simon Sinek wrote this one statement down that I just think is a good challenge to us. Our why, our why is our purpose, our cause or belief, the driving force behind everything we do. Church, you have a why. It's what causes you to move forward in everything that you do. And the lack of a why is what causes you to sit down in everything that you should be doing. A why. Everyone has reasons for doing what they do, for doing it how they do it, and when they do it. We have lots of different reasons. And as a Christian, I think it is important for us to stop for a moment and understand the whys of our life. Why do we live for Christ? Why should we live for Christ? Why should we allow our lives to be used by God in this life? And it's with that backdrop, I ask you to stand with me. We're going to read from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Make sure you're in 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians. I've I've done that before, and I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 9 through 21. It says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust, also trust, are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those 
who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you. You may be seated. Keep your scripture open. We're going to walk back through here. Remember, our key phrase this morning is, why? Why do you do what you do? Why should we live our lives for Christ? Verse 9 gives us our first one. I hope this is something that's true of your life. We make it our aim, verse 9 says, to be pleasing to him. If you're reading from the King James Bible, it says that we make our aim to be accepted by him. What's your aim today? What's your purpose? What drives you? What motivates you? Do you want your life to be pleasing to him, pleasing to God? Why? I pray that your answer in your heart is, yes, I want my life to be pleasing unto God. I want that to be my aim, my goal, my desire. Why? You see, you have to push on that because it's easy to want and then do nothing about it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You know, one of the reasons we have to be ready, our desire should be to please God, is because we will find ourselves. This scripture says, people will ask us, what's your hope in? What drives you? Why do you live this way? Why do you go to church? They can make it very simple like that. But why? And Scripture teaches us that we are to be ready to tell them why, to give a defense of why we live our lives this way. We must clarify in our hearts, church, why we do what we do. What is your motivation in ministry? Now, we can start very simply, why are you here? Well, I'm here because it's 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. Where else am I supposed to be? I like that answer. I look forward to 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings as well. But church, this is not our goal. This is our classroom. This is our training session so that when we walk out of here, we can be ready to live our lives for Christ. Why? Well, because that scripture said that there will be people that will ask us, why? Why? And you got to be ready. So we're going to spend just a few minutes walking through this scripture to give you reasons why you should be ready, why you do 
what you do. See, I think today's scripture provides us with reasons, motivations of why we do or what should we be doing. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Church, can I tell you that every believer is going to appear before the Lord. The judgment seat of Christ is that future event when each of God's people, now that's an important thing, God's people will stand before their Savior as their works are judged and rewarded. Romans chapter 14, verses 8 through 10 says this, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says this. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. These scriptures allude to the fact that one day, as believers in Jesus, we will stand before the Lord. You see, the word judgment seat that Paul speaks of right there comes from the word bema. That is the platform. The bema seat was the platform in Greek towns where all the orations were made. It was the big, tall, elevated area where rulers made decisions. It was also the place where the winner of the Olympics would receive their awards. The bema. The judgment seat of Christ, church, is different from the great white throne judgment that is spoken about in Revelation chapter 20. The great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20, is where Jesus will judge the wicked and the or or the unsaved people. So all people are going to appear before Christ. Christians will appear before him at the judgment seat of Christ, at the Bema seat. And those who do not have faith in Jesus will appear before him at the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is the judgment for the Christian. And we will not have to give an account for our sins because, see, as you came to accept Jesus as your Savior, you were forgiven. Your sins were wiped out. Scripture says they are as they never happened. So you'll never have to stand before God and deal with your sin because Jesus has already stood before God and taken care of your sin. Isn't that awesome? But we, children of God, will have to give an account of our works and our service for the Lord. I know a number of years ago, I had to write my testimony down. You go to start writing your testimony down, it can become, if you're me, lots of pages. And somebody says, that's great. They were teaching me. They said, that's great, but that's too much. Whittle it down. Take your 15 pages, take your 20 minutes and turn it into, and they successively brought me down and they said, get it down to a minute. Because sometimes, church, you only have a minute to answer the question, why is that hope you have in your life? And you've got to be ready anywhere from a minute. And if somebody will give you 20 minutes, take it. But be ready in that minute. And it got down to the fact that I put mine this way. 
when I found out I was a sinner and that that broke God's heart, I desired to change my life, accept Jesus, and to seek to live for him. It boils down to living that way. The judgment seat of Christ, where we will stand as children of God, will be a place of revelation. You see, while I or you may be able to hide your actions on this earth, and there are some in this room, you think you're doing a really good job of hiding your actions. The true character of a person and their works will be made manifest when you stand before Jesus. You will not get away without dealing with that. And we're talking about how you lived your life after coming to know Christ. Not only will it be a time of revelation, it'll be a time of reckoning. It will be a place where the faithful are recognized and rewarded. Church, are you ready to stand before Jesus? You know, there's certainly a possibility that I don't finish this sermon, but I find myself standing before Jesus. Are you ready? Are you ready? The second reason we need to do why we do, verse 11 says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Did you know that in the 30 minutes I will spend sharing this message? You're going, some of you go, okay, he's only going to do 30 minutes. Well, that was like early in the week. We'll see how long it ends up, okay? But did you know that in the 30 minutes that I will spend sharing this message, 3,420 people will die. Worldwide, will die. That's the latest statistic I could find. Somewhere on this planet, this many people, 3,420 will die, and most of them will die separated without Christ. If God is going to judge his own people, that we just talked about. What will happen to those that are lost, that have no advocate, that have no Jesus in their lives? Those who have not accepted Jesus as Savior. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18 says this, Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? We know the terror of the Lord. Let's talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's talk about Egypt. Let's talk about Jericho. Let's talk about the flood. Let's talk about Ananias and Sapphira. Let's talk about people if we want to. But we understand the terror of the Lord. He has shown us who he is and how he will handle sin. God's word has commanded us to spread the gospel to all nations, and we must, church, be obedient. We must be motivated, our why, to share the hope that we have with Jesus to everybody we can find. 
3,420 comes down to 114 people in a minute. And so in the more than a minute that I have spoken to you about this minute, 114 people have passed, the majority of them without Christ. I don't know how we that have experienced the grace and the mercy of Jesus can rest and not share the gospel. But do you know why we have extra seats? Yeah, the Titans are playing a home game. That's one of the reasons we have some extra seats probably. But do you know why we have extra seats? Well, there's some people online, people on the phone. They're not ready to be back yet. Okay. Do you know why we have some extra seats? The main reason we have extra seats is because the people of God don't recognize the terror of the Lord enough that we don't go out and share the hope that we have found in Jesus with those who desperately need him. Church, look at you. There's, look, at, look at both sides. There are people that could be sitting with you people who need to understand the hope that they can find in Jesus. We have forgotten what it is like to be set free from our sins. Some could say that if we don't have that burden, burden, Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way, he says, you don't have a burden for those that are lost? It's because you are lost as well. I'm glad I didn't say that because you'd be mad at me if I said that. But church, I'll tell you what, we are not being obedient when it comes to sharing the hope that we have in Jesus. And it is either because we are unfamiliar with Jesus or we have forgotten what Jesus did for us or we just don't care. But they will stand before the great white throne judgment without an advocate. That's why we do what we do. We must be motivated to persuade men. Look at verse 14. Another reason why we do what we do, it says, for the love of Christ compels us. We are to be driven by his love for us. Driven. The love of Christ Let's define it. Means his love for us as demonstrated by his sacrificial death on the cross. That's the love of Christ. Scripture says that we love him because he first loved us. That's 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. He loved us. He loved me when I was unlovely. In fact, we were ungodly, Sinners and enemies of God. And he loved us anyway. When he died on the cross, Christ proved his love for the world, the church, and the individual sinner. When we consider the reasons why Christ died, we cannot help but love him. Think about these reasons why Christ died. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says that I am crucified with Christ. He died that I might die. 
to my sins and my eternity of separation. We have died to death, to sin and to the power of evil because of Jesus' death for us. Scripture says that when he died, when we come to faith, we died was as well. Not only did we, he die so that we might die, he died so that we might live. Romans chapter 7, verse 4 says this, when he was raised from the dead, we live through him. We can overcome sin and bear fruit for him because he died. He died that we might die. He died that we might live. We live through him. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. You are alive today, spiritually speaking, because of Jesus, if you've come to know him by faith. Now, I'll just go ahead and make this statement. You are alive today, physically speaking, because God has gifted you breath. And it's not guaranteed how many more I have or you have. And I'm not about fear. I'm about truth. And Scripture says that we're supposed to live through him. Not only do we live through him, Scripture teaches us in this verse, verse 15 of today's passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, that we can live for him. It says that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. Now, let me tell you, That man that I look at in the mirror every morning, he is not as godly as he needs to be. But that man is learning every single day to yield, yield, yield his life to God, to trust, to obey. It's a journey. It's not an instantaneous perfection, sanctification. It's a journey that we go through. We can live for him. Francis Ridley Havergal in 1858 wrote these words. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given for me? Not only do we get to live through him and for him, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10 says that we can live with him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 10 says this, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. You know, so many times that scripture tells us, so many times we think our lives are, we're living our lives waiting for our eternity to begin. No, when God ignited your life, you were eternal. Your life is being lived to determine where you spend your eternity. And this scripture said, where do you, make sure I say it correctly here. It says, whether we wake or sleep, whether we are alive or dead, we should live with him. And you go, Jeff, I know I'm going to live with him in heaven eternally. Yes, but he's offering for you to live with him Now, verse 17, another reason why we do what we do, says you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. 
You know, one of the greatest benefits of being a new creation is that we should have a new view of the people around us. We see them as people that God created, that he loves, that are sinners for whom Jesus died. We should no longer see them as enemies or family or friends or customers or coworkers. We must see them as Christ sees them, as lost sheep who need a Savior. When you come to know Jesus and you become that new creation, you will want to share the love of Christ with others. Hopefully you have your scripture up, but I want to reread verses 18 to 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. Catch all this. It says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Church, you notice that? Has given us. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us. Church, you notice it again? Committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. You get the point, right? You see what's happening here? We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 18 said, God has reconciled us to himself. Fancy word, imputation simply means to put toward one's account. When Jesus died on the cross and you came to accept him through faith, your sins were imputed to him, put on Jesus's account. And he was treated by God on the cross as if he had actually committed those sins. Those sins through Jesus have now been paid for and God no longer holds them against you because or if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. But there's more. God has imputed to you, placed in your account, the righteousness of Jesus. You know, I've got this app on my phone. And Angela's probably listening to me. She's out of town with her mom, but she's probably listening to me. But I have this app on my phone. It's from the bank. Thank you, Jeff. And you know that every time somebody uses my debit card, I get a notification. And it's not just every time somebody uses my debit card. It's every time somebody uses Angela's debit card, I get a notification. And so every time I get a notification, and I know it wasn't me, I know it was her, and I'll reach out to her and, She'll say, are you watching me? And we see what's happening there. But we see what happens in our account. Do you know what happens? If there was this salvation app where you could log in, I want to see what's in my account. Let me tell you, my life has not been perfect. I have not lived for God in many ways. But when I log in to my salvation account, you know what I see? It's empty. 
There's no sin there. There's no mistakes there. There's no failures there. All I see is the bright red blood of Jesus that said, paid in full, righteous forever. Amen? Imputation. Jesus took all of my sin onto his account. I got all of his righteousness on mine. So church, let me start aiming toward the exit here. Why do you do what you do? This scripture teaches us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That we know the terror of the Lord, so we must persuade men. That the love of Christ compels us, drives us. That you are a new creation. You're different than you used to be. And you've been reconciled to God. One final statement. Verse 20 says this, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Church, you are an ambassador. Christ himself has appointed you as his witness. His testimony to the world. God is pleading to the world through you to accept his son Jesus as their savior. Church, are you doing anything? Christians ought to pray and labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. In the Baptist faith and message, section 10, there's something called last things. This is what we believe on last things. It says, I'm gonna quote it. God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. 3,420. How many people die in 30 minutes? 114 every minute. 163,898 people every day. 59 million and some change every year. And the vast majority of them without Jesus. Church, what are you going to do about it? Why do you do what you do? Do you do what you're supposed to do? If you're uncertain where to start, let me give you a hand. Start with a simple step. If you do not know Jesus, our invitation here in just a minute is for you. Take a step of faith out from where you are and forward to Christ. Walk this aisle, ask for help, and we will walk with you to help you understand scripturally what God has done, what he desires to do, and how you can be saved. 
You can start with another step. Perhaps you're going, yeah, I've been tending here a while. But I want to join. I want to be a part of something that's organized, something that's bigger than me. I want to join, and that step comes with connecting with the body of believers here at First Baptist and getting busy serving God in the way that He directs you. That step would lead you to make a commitment. And if you see a need to do something, it's on your heart to do something, but you just don't know what it is you're to do and how it is you're to do it, but you just know you're supposed to be doing something, then take a walk and come see me. And we'll talk about that. We'll pray about that. We will do that together. 3,420. Church, why do you do what you do? Your why is what drives you. Your why not is really just a why leading you away from God. Your why. What's your purpose? 